It's hard to know what a Christian should do sometimes. What do you do when governing authorities let you down? When those who are supposed to promote peace and order instead foment violence? What is to be done when leaders seem focused solely on what is good for them rather than for what's good for the people? Along the way, what do you do when governing authorities threaten to take away Christian liberty? You know, when the freedom to worship on the Lord's Day, according to freedom of conscience, is called into question. When gathering might be viewed as a crime. What's a Christian to do when not just freedom of worship is constricted, but even freedom of speech is threatened? When the specter of compelled Speech looms. We will force you to say what is demanded or we will call you to account, regardless of your Christian convictions. Most distressingly, what do you do when human life is held cheaply? From life in the womb all the way to the life of the aged and the infirm. In between, you realize that your own life is viewed cheaply. What's a Christian to do? I'm talking, of course, about what it would have been like as a Christian living in the Roman Empire in the first century. You might have thought I was talking about this country today or some other country around the world, and I suppose I could be. But we do have the tendency to think that we live in unique times, don't we? We are often in need of the reminder from the ancient preacher that what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. We began last week a study of Jesus' final discourse in the book of Matthew, delivered on the Mount of Olives to his disciples. Uh, We said then that what we needed at the start of a new year is reliable information about the future. We need something that anchors us because it reliably tells us where we're headed, what we can expect, what promises we can cling to. This was true a week ago. Maybe it's especially true after the events of the last week in the nation's capital. Uh, We've been reminded, haven't we, how fragile peace and tranquility can be. Uh, God in his sovereignty has seen fit to remind us again and again in recent months that we are not in control. So let's turn to his word together, to Matthew 24. Verses 36 to 51, it's my prayer that these words of Jesus this morning will be a firm place for you and I to build our lives. Matthew 24, I'll read verse 36 through verse 51. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. 
But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you're taking notes this morning, the main idea of this text, you may want to write down. Because we don't know when Jesus will return, we should be ready today. Because we don't know when Jesus will return, we should be ready today. And we'll consider that in two points. Number one, we don't know when Jesus will return. And number two, we should stay awake and be ready. We don't know when Jesus will return. We should stay awake and be ready. So let's think about firstly, we don't know when Jesus will return. Looking here specifically at verses 36 to 41. And let's remember that we're picking up here uh, an answer that Jesus is giving to a two-part question. The disciples at the beginning of the chapter, after remarking how amazingly big and beautiful the temple was, heard Jesus' prophecy that not one stone would be left on another. He is prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. And then the disciples came to him with a question, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Verses 4 through 35 largely cover the first part of that. The, the these things refers to the things that would happen in that generation, uh, 30 to 70 AD, culminating with the destruction of Jerusalem. So God's judgment on Israel for rejecting the Messiah and a vindication of Jesus as that Messiah. Well, there's a shift here in verse 36 when he says, but concerning that day and hour, he's referring now to the time of his second coming. The language of verse 37 is very clear that the coming of the son of man, this is specific. The, the Greek word translated coming here is the word parousia. It refers to a visitation from someone important. Jesus used it to refer to the time of his second coming, when he would not come as the first to suffer and die for sins, but when he would come again in glory to rule and to judge and to set up his eternal kingdom. Well, what we're told here is that no one knows the time when that will happen. The, the disciples assumed that this was one event, that the destruction of Jerusalem and his second coming to set up his kingdom was, was one event. Uh, Jesus has pulled those things apart. Um, they were wrong, and so is everyone in history who has tried to predict the coming of Jesus. So in our lifetime, you may have remembered uh, Harold Camping, I think most recently, most famously in 2011, uh, his family radio was all over the U.S., and and May 21st, 2011, was when he said Jesus would return. Uh, he was wrong, but he's just one of many, many people. It, it seems just too attractive a thing 
to try to predict to many, uh, but you wonder how Jesus could have been any clearer. No one knows. No man knows. He says that no angel knows. But then that little phrase, nor the Son, but the Father only. This has led to a lot of misunderstanding, I think. Uh, Those who reject the Trinity, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, they seize upon this verse, arguing that it shows that Jesus is less than equal with the Father. So so the Father knows, the Son doesn't know. So the, the Son, Jesus, does not have omniscience. Well, our understanding of the Trinity comes from other verses, like John 10.30, where Jesus clearly teaches that I and the Father are one. Or John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What this verse teaches here is the uniqueness of Jesus. He is at the same time fully God and fully man. In the same way that omnipresence is an attribute of God that Jesus has from all eternity, but was in his human nature necessarily limited to a manger in Bethlehem in the incarnation. Jesus in his omnipresence, in his divine nature, is everywhere present. So he can be listening to our prayers here this morning, as well as... Prayers being prayed at an evening service in Shanghai, China. But when we speak of his human nature, he was located to one place. Well, in the same way, his knowledge in his human nature can be spoken of as limited. While in his divine nature, the book of Colossians tells us that in him, in Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Both of those things are simultaneously true. So in that sense, the man Jesus can say that only the Father knows the day and the hour. Now Jesus, the Prince of Preachers, he he illustrates what this lack of knowledge about his return means for us, especially for the unbelieving. He he goes back to the book of Genesis, to the days of Noah that uh, William read just a few moments ago. Uh, Noah, you will remember, is asked to build an enormous ship. In November, our family visited the the field in Kentucky where they've they've built, according to the the measurements, a a replica of sorts of Noah's Ark. It's an amazingly large thing. And God had told Noah that judgment was coming on the wickedness of man in the form of a flood. Noah had to believe God and to prepare for saving his family by building this ark. Well, what Jesus points out is that during the many years that he would have been building, the the life of the people around Noah would have been going on as normal, right? They they were eating and drinking. They were marrying and being given in marriage. Right up until the day Noah entered the ark. They're just living out their lives. So verse 39 says they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Now, from that perspective, judgment came unexpectedly. We could look at it from another perspective. The New Testament calls Noah a preacher of righteousness, both in his actions that would have attracted attention and in his words, apparently, he was telling the people that judgment was coming. He was telling them they needed to repent. They were words that went unheeded. So especially for those who are ignoring God, 
that day will come in an utterly unexpected way. But Jesus gives another picture of what it will be like. Look at verse 41. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Then two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Again, it's a picture of people doing normal sorts of things. They're at work in the field or at the mill grinding wheat. Very typical activities. It's a normal work day for them. I assume that the ones being taken here are saved while the others are left for judgment, but the point works either way. Jesus is saying that not only will the day come unexpectedly, it will come suddenly, without warning. It will be over in a moment. Now, much of the application of this awaits our second point, but it's worth stopping here to reflect on the assumptions that you and I make. You and I assume that we need dinner plans for tonight, right? We assume that we need to make career plans. Some of us are studying in school right now for what we hope is a future career. Some of us are realizing that we need to do things about our career right now to make that career continue. We assume that there's a vaccine that's coming that's going to bring life back to normal in a way that we haven't known the last nine months. We assume that saving for retirement is a good thing to be doing. And those things are all fine. But you do realize that they're all assumptions, right? They aren't givens. They're by no means certain. Jesus has already taught his disciples not to assume tomorrow in in the parable of the rich fool. You you remember that uh, Jesus spoke about this uh, man who was building bigger barns to, to house his wealth. And the man is saying to himself and thinking that he's going to have many years to enjoy what he has stored up. You remember what Jesus said? You fool. This very night, your life will be required of you. What he meant is that while God has numbered your days, you don't know their number. So we're never certain of life Tomorrow, Death could come at any time. But Jesus is adding to that uncertainty here. Do you recognize that? Uh, Because we also don't know the timing of his return, we are doubly uncertain about tomorrow. Well, how does that change things for you and I? Well, for the Christian, as as T.R. Glover puts it, this helps us to hallow every day of life, to realize that before its close, we may be in the presence of Christ's glory. To hallow means to to set apart, to to make holy. This helps us to hallow every day of life. To realize that before its close, we may be in the presence of Christ's glory. For the non-Christian, it places the urgency of your decision about Jesus Christ at the top of the list of importance. Some things you can safely put off until tomorrow, this isn't one of them. Being reconciled to your creator is the most important thing in your life. What is there that's more important, friend? I would encourage you before you leave today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Place your trust in what he's done on the cross to pay for sins. Believe on him today. So we don't know the day of his return. 
Well, what does Jesus expect us to do in light of that truth, in light of this unexpected, sudden, unalterable coming reality? That's our second point. We should stay awake and be ready. Looking more closely at verses 42 to 51. Uh, Look there at verse 42. Jesus says, therefore, stay awake. We're familiar with phrases like asleep on the job or to, to be caught napping, right? Um, this, this is a metaphor here, although I suppose you could take it literally. If, if you find yourself dozing off at this point in the sermon, stay awake is just a literal thing. But, but metaphorically, he speaks about our spiritual lives. He's saying that we should not fall asleep spiritually. Losing spiritual consciousness is apparently a great danger to us. Well, Jesus jumps immediately into an illustration in verse 43 about a homeowner, a master of a house, and a thief that is coming to rob him. Thieves were the bane of the ancient world, even more so than today. Uh, Without convenient banking, uh, people didn't have any other choice oftentimes than to keep all of their savings in a bag of coins. They would try to, to hide that in their house, usually somewhere, perhaps in the floor or the walls, which were often made out of dirt. Well, the art of thieves was to figure out where was the money and when will the master not be home. If you know when the thief is coming, it's easy to stop. But because you don't, you would have to remain vigilant, constantly vigilant. Well, this is a frequent exhortation in the New Testament. Be alert, be sober. Stay awake. Now, if you think about it, vigilance is hard to keep up. You may be reading articles these days about pandemic fatigue. You can only keep on red alert for so long, seemingly. And even if you are on alert, what does he mean by staying awake in terms of the second coming? I mean, he doesn't mean that we should sit in lawn chairs out on our front lawns just looking up at the sky, right? Well, in the remaining verses, Jesus answers that in a parable. He gives us these two contrasting scenes. Both of them envision a typical situation in the ancient world where where a bondservant, a servant, is left in charge of the household by a a master of the house. The, The servant is given certain responsibilities and expectations. And then the master leaves for some period of time. So look there in verse 45. The the first example we are presented is a a faithful and wise servant. He's charged with distributing food to the other servants at the proper time. And we're told that when the master returns and finds him doing what he's supposed to be doing, he's blessed. And as a result of faithfulness, his stewardship is actually increased. He's set over all his master's possessions. So so the summary of that, that first servant is he's given a stewardship. He's found faithfully discharging that stewardship, and he receives a reward. Well, then in verse 48, we have the second example. Instead of a a faithful servant, we have a wicked servant. As Jesus likes to do, he he gives us a window into that person's thinking. You notice what he says to himself there. My master is delayed. Interesting. He doesn't conclude that his master will never come back. But something about the delay has, has opened up possibilities in his mind. He's been given some level of authority as the one who distributes food to them. Well, he begins to abuse that authority. He, he begins beating the other, other, other servants. And now he has space for self-indulgence, right? 
eating and drinking with drunkards, the pursuit of pleasure. And we're told that the the return of the master catches him unawares. He, He isn't expecting the master when he comes, verse 51. We read that he's judged and he's cast out. There is some debate on what cut to pieces means here, since afterwards he's placed where the hypocrites are. But the conclusion is that in this place there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a picture of regret because of the the wretched choice that the servant has made. So again, in summary, given a stewardship, this time found seeking power and pleasure rather than what he's supposed to be doing, and he's judged. Well, the meaning of the parable is pretty clear to us, right? Uh, But it's rich with application, I think. I want us to consider four application points from this. Number one, realize delay shouldn't mean doubt. Realize delay shouldn't mean doubt. The, The delay in the return of Jesus should not cast doubt on the certainty of the return of Jesus. Peter, in 2 Peter, talked about already in the first century there were those that were beginning to doubt. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. creation. Uh, maybe you and I could sit here this morning and it's been nearly 2,000 years Since these words were spoken, it seems like everything just keeps rolling along. Maybe it will always be like that. Well, Jesus is warning us not to let delay lead to doubt. It's essential to Christian faith to believe that the master is coming again. You may ask, well, what do I do with my doubt? What if I doubt? Well, brothers and sisters, I'd encourage you to pray your doubts back to God. The the scoffer that Peter had in mind there is is far different from a humble prayer. Ask the Lord to increase your sense of certainty that he will return. But I think for many of us, the problem may be more a matter of forgetting than doubt. In the same chapter that Peter warns about those who will scoff at the return of Christ, he tells Christians that in contrast, they should be those who are looking forward to the day of God. Well, you can't look forward to something that you're not calling to mind. I was thinking about how good my kids are at looking forward to things, at looking forward to a birthday that's coming, a, a gift that they're expecting to get, or, or how good we were as kids and looking forward to the vacation, even if it was months away. Well, looking forward to something means constantly calling it to mind, talking about it, turning it over in your imagination. Brothers and sisters, we should look forward to the return of Christ and being in his eternal kingdom in that way. Don't don't let the delay lead to doubt or to forgetting for you. That's application number one. Uh, Secondly, uh, make servant your identity as a Christian. Make servant your identity as a Christian. This story about the servants is a parable. It's a story with a point. Well, the point is obviously that we want to be like the wise and faithful servant, right? We're just like the servant in that we've been given a job to do. We have purposes to fulfill. We have stewardship to discharge. 
Christians understand themselves to be servants of the Lord. This was the Apostle Paul's favorite way to refer to himself, right? He was a bondservant of Jesus Christ. We should view all the different roles and responsibilities of our lives as, as arenas in which to fulfill our various callings, what the Master has called us to do. I mean, those things may change as, as our life circumstances do to some degree, but, but these are our callings. We're, we're a mom or a dad. We're a husband or a wife, a, a son or a daughter. You're a member of a church, perhaps a, an elder, a deacon, a, a Sunday school teacher, the, the treasurer. You're a businessman or a businesswoman, a teacher or a student, a consultant, a supervisor. Whatever you do, it's essential that you view it as a stewardship from God. Do you think about servant as your Christian identity? Stop and consider if, if, if you think about yourself as a servant of the Lord. Do you view all of your time and your talent and your treasure as belonging to Him? How about the opportunities that he brings your way? The the different relationships that are in your life right now that you have an opportunity to invest in? How about the neighborhood in which you live? All of these things are given to you with a purpose. I was thinking that it's just a wonderful thing to embrace this as our identity. It sets us free from so many of the traps that people around us are falling into. I was thinking about this question of identity, identity politics, is something that we seem immersed in these days. Uh, We live in an age when people are constantly seeking to identify themselves some way or another. Often it's through their sexuality or through their work or some other thing that gives them a sense of fulfillment. And we hear the voices that say, find yourself and then be the best version of yourself that you can be. I think teenagers and young people are especially bombarded with this idea that they need to find a persona that will give them a sense of self-worth and approval. Friends, these sorts of things set up a fruitless and exhausting search. When your identity is a child of God and a servant of the King, you don't need to search. You don't have to worry about whether you've missed the boat somewhere in life, about how your life has turned out. You don't have to worry about whether the good life is slipping you by somehow. We don't have to worry about whether we could have found a more ideal marriage partner. A thousand what-ifs that might come into our minds we don't even have to think about. Our identity, and therefore our greatest happiness and well-being is found in this relationship we have with the king. So that's second. Make servant your identity as a Christian. Third application for us here is realize unrepentant sin is evidence of unbelief. Realize unrepentant sin is evidence of unbelief. We need to heed the warning of this passage. The the, the wicked servant in the story makes us recoil a bit. As often in parables, the the extreme is presented. Uh, His abuse of power seems over the top to us. We say, well, I, I, I would never beat anybody. And his hedonism might seem extreme as well as he parties with drunkards. We may tell ourselves we're not doing that. But friends, the search for power and pleasure in the absence of the master is everywhere. It's in our fallen human nature. I was remembering from uh, 
seen from my youth. My parents would go out to play racquetball sometimes and, and leave me in charge of my two younger brothers, which is a questionable decision at best. Um, my job was to put them to bed at the proper time and then a few minutes later go to bed myself. Is that what I did? Well, no. I, I would try to put them to bed early to get them out of the way. And then I would turn on the television and get the ice cream out of the freezer. That was the way that I would abuse power and pleasure until I would hear the garage door going up and the return of the master came. And then I had 60 seconds to turn off the TV and put the ice cream away and run to my bed. It's what fallen human beings do. But the wicked servant in the story, the question we've got to think about, does he really believe the master will return at all? I kind of doubt it. It's hard to imagine how he thinks he will get away with it, right? When we move from parable to reality, it's hard to square this kind of behavior with being a true believer at all. If, if you really believe Jesus is returning, you may sin, but you'll repent of that sin, right? Friends, the greatest evidence that you are a saved sinner is that you're a repenting sinner. That is what I think many don't understand about church membership. The reason you unite yourself with a local church in part is because you want the accountability that you can find there. You don't want to just be a self-proclaimed Christian. You, you want other people around you who could look at your life and say, yeah, William's living like a Christian. Yeah, Mike's not perfect, but he, he continues to turn to the Lord in repentance and faith. Because the danger is that we begin living for ourselves rather than living for him. That's the wicked servant's story. Power and pleasure is what he lives for. In his mind, he's king. So self-indulgence is also king. We may read the story and recoil, but, but the sort of autonomy that the, the wicked servant represents is so attractive to our flesh, to our fallen human desires. If you or I find ourselves increasingly living for power, and for pleasure. It's a sign that we may not be believers at all. That's when you want people around you who will tell you the truth. Jesus means for a person in that situation to read this and to be warned and to come back to him in repentance and faith. And, and that is why he closes with this terrible but very real truth. At his return, Jesus will separate the believing from the unbelieving. And when he does that, he will not be swayed by appearances. Unrepentant sinners will not be saved just because they call themselves servants of the king. Just because they profess to be believers. When it says here that he will be put with the hypocrites, it's because that's what he is. That's what people are whose actions don't match what they say they believe. And there will be great sorrow on that day. So thirdly, unrepentant sin is evidence of unbelief. But fourth and finally, our application from this text, I think, is that we need to get busy serving. We need to get busy serving. I hesitate to tell people living in, in the D.C. area to get busy. Busyness is not hard for us. But that doesn't mean that we're busy with the right things. What we should be is busy about our master's business. You know, I was thinking that a healthy church 
is one where the members are constantly looking for ways to serve one another. That's been one of the things that's encouraged Megan and I so much about this church. I, I see you guys serving. It, it's encouraging to me. The message here is to excel still more as the elders and the deacons of the church seek to expand the ministries of Arlington Baptist. We as members should be ready to, to serve in the different ways that are needed. And then in lots of small ways that nobody ever sees, we should be looking for people in the body who need help so that we can render it. And then as we look outside the church, I think serving is one of our best ways of evangelism in this time. Are there ways that you can serve the neighbors in the community that you live in? At your school, are there ways that you can serve? Even in your office, you can win an audience for the gospel by the way that you serve other people around you. This past week, we've been reminded of how divided our nation is and the the proposals abound as to what exactly is wrong and how we can fix it. Most of those proposals come with a lot of finger pointing at the other side. It's amazing, isn't it, that the problem is always on the other side. And many of those things seem like quick fixes and silver bullets. I don't think that love your neighbor as yourself is going to be trending on Twitter today. But I think it will be most effective in the long run. Quiet, humble service is a more powerful witness than we might think. In his book, The Call, Oz Guinness tells a story about a a French Huguenot village called Le Chambon. I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but something like that. The the Huguenots were, were... Christians, they were French Protestants that um, really experienced centuries of persecution. Uh, But during World War II, when when Jewish people were were fleeing the Nazis as they uh, invaded France, uh, many uh, ended up traveling through this town. It's a town of only about 2,000 people uh, up in the mountains. Uh, But what basically happened is a pastor... And his wife organized the church and the townspeople uh, to take in Jewish people and especially Jewish children. So you can imagine a, a town of only about 2,000 people ends up taking, they estimate, three to 5,000 children uh, into their homes, providing rations for them, hiding them from the Nazis. Uh, what's striking later when, when people go back to, to interview um, and, and as Oz Guinness uh, writes about this one, they, they ask a, a townsperson uh, about why they did it. And, and this is what he said. Why do you call us good? We were doing what had to be done. Things had to be done. That's all. And we happened to be there to do them. You must understand that it was the most natural thing in the world to help these people. You can almost hear echoes of Luke 17.10 in their words. We're unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. It's the most natural thing in the world to help people. Well, that's true when you've been loved as we've been loved. We love because he first loved us. We're servants of the Lord. And therefore, we're servants of those around us. So brothers and sisters, let's get busy serving. We should conclude. Because we don't know when Jesus will return, we should be ready today. 
Be ready by fixing in your mind the certainty of his return. Make serving your identity. Ask the Lord by his grace and through his spirit to make you wise and faithful. And set your hopes on the blessing that will come to those servants who are found so doing when he returns. Let's pray. Our Father, you've been so good to us in Christ. It is our joy and delight to consider ourselves your servants and then to view ourselves as servants of all around us. We pray that you would fuel our service by your spirit. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.